I'm Frederick Wiseman, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going pretty well. How about you? I can't complain. Uh, it's been a pretty cool week, you know. COVID-free? Uh, COVID-free as far as I can tell. Uh, yes. I, I haven't been personally tested, but I've also gone nowhere. So, you know. Okay. I am also COVID-free. And also, uh, when I'm not doing this podcast, I, I, I run a place called Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank, and we sell lots of gear. And, and what do you do? I am a freelance director, sometimes producer, sometimes writer, often editor. So I do I do uh, a lot of multi-hyphenated stuff. You can find it all at benrockonline.com. Hey, Ilya, who is on the show today? Oh, well, it's documentary legend Frederick Wiseman. I mean, calling Frederick Wiseman a documentary legend understates it to a degree. It, it just, like, just a little bit, yeah. He is, <laughs> yeah, uh, he is almost a genre unto himself in terms of documentaries. He uh, started in the 60s and is still working today, and he's made basically about one documentary a year-ish, so he's closing in on 50 documentaries that he's made, and these are pretty in-depth uh, films. They're pretty amazing, and as I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, you can find almost all of them on Canopy, which if you have a library card and if your library system subscribes to it, is free for most people. It's interesting because when I was preparing to interview him, I watched a bunch of, of his films. I'd seen a bunch, but I had I honestly had seen a lot of his older films from the 60s and 70s, and I hadn't seen as many of his more modern films or even into the 90s. I'd seen a smattering of them, but I kind of went and, and kind of did a strike on the ones that I had missed. And what's interesting to me is if you look at Titicut Follies, which is his first film and is honestly one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. Uh, if you look at that film and you look at his newest film, City Hall, which is why he was on the show. City Hall is in color and people are dressed in a modern way, but in so many ways you could immediately say it's the same person making this. It is it is the same creative voice. And uh, it was amazing to talk to him. He's, I believe he's 90 and he could kick both our asses and uh, he's Kill Bill sharp, style. Yeah. sharp as a tack and unpretentious. I, I just really appreciated everything about Frederick Wiseman and, uh, and I feel lucky that I got to talk to him. Very much indeed. And we're going to get to that interview in just a couple of minutes. But you know what we have right now? It's our close focus time of the show. Yeah, it's close focus. So, Ilya, what would you like to talk about today? Well, uh, a couple of days ago, Disney had a investor meeting. They did it online and it goes on for more than three hours. Uh, we can put Oof. a link in the show notes for, for those who, who want to watch it. For people who have never three hours to burn. And, I, and it's I kind do of funny. not know what that's like anymore. They make a joke at the beginning of it saying like, oh, yeah, you know, this is going to take a while. But like, where else do you have to be or what do you have going <laughs> on? It's a pandemic. And it was like, wow. OK, so, yeah, if you if it's it's kind of painful to watch. There is um, there is a nice synopsis, actually, that uh, Disney did at their D23.com. Or maybe we can add a, a the, that the was link probably that done by friends of mine because I've freelanced for uh, D23 several times. I remember you telling me that. But, uh, yeah, they did all the Disney announcements. And there's a lot 
lot of announcements and some people have speculated that not all of these will happen, but they showed clips of some of the things like the new Loki mm-hmm. series that they're doing with, you know, the with uh, Tom Hiddleston. Exactly. So also, um, my goodness, it just goes on and on. But um, they also a lot of Star Wars. A lot of Star Wars. If I can slightly uh, uh, be be indulgent for two seconds on Twitter, I and actually also on Facebook, I, as kind of a goof, I put a thing like, "Hey, name name a Star Wars character that didn't get their own show that you'd like to uh, have, you know, that you'd like to, and, and pitch me the show." And uh, we got some some really great uh, all all the way across, you know, like. Uh, Did you uh, see my pitch? Reality shows. Uh, I I guarantee I saw it, but I, there were so many that it got lost. What was your pitch? Real Housewives of the Tuscan Raiders. Yes, of course. Of course. That was, yeah. I, I wanted to do a, a cooking show with Porkins, who dies in the, in episode four, uh, called Porkins Forkins. <laughs> yeah, he was the guy who uh, who was making the attack run on the Death Star. Yeah, and, stay on target. And they came from behind. Stay and, on uh, target. That guy. Yeah, yeah okay, gotcha. All anyway, right. so I'm sorry. Uh, do go on. <laughs> Wow, it's terrible that I was able to somehow pick that out. That's that's the inner nerd coming coming through right mm-hmm. now. And anyway, uh, okay, so uh, they they announced uh, quite a bit of new stuff and also some old stuff too. Um, for the fans of "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," they uh, have a have plenty to celebrate because it just got renewed for four more seasons, and uh, that's going to make it the longest running live action sitcom in television history. Wow! Yeah, crazy. Yeah. I mean, and, good for uh, them. It's a good show. In- incredibly good for them. They were also, they're going to remake, uh, your, I don't know if you remember the, the 80s uh, television miniseries Shogun. That's, uh, I that's do coming remember, back yes. again. That's, that's going to happen. And this is all straight to Disney Plus, right? Quite a bit of it. But they also announced their stuff that they're going to do in partnership with Hulu and FX and all the other sort of networks that Disney yeah. has a hand in too. Uh, yeah, Lucasfilm's going to do a Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi series. With that also has been a- in discussions for quite some time. Well, that's it sounds like that's happening. Uh, John Favreau and Dave Filoni are doing uh, Rangers of the New Republic uh, and Ahsoka, which is, uh, I guess, two different series. Um, and and that, that's interesting. And then it looks like there's going to be a Hocus Pocus 2 for, for Disney Plus and wow. another reboot of Three Men and a Baby sister act coming back. Uh, will will the Three Men and the Baby reboot have a haunted scene like with a ghost in it like the original movie did? Uh, that that I couldn't tell you. It was big news in the in the '90s because we didn't really have anything else going on. There's going to be like a Pixar prequel for Buzz Lightyear called Lightyear. There they've got like a they've got a whole little trailer for that. I actually didn't get to watch, but tons mm-hmm. of Marvel stuff, including Miss Marvel, uh, the Loki series I mentioned before. They should do the marvelous Miss Marvel. <laughs> that would be wonderful. But uh, <laughs> uh, there's something called Hello, David Thor- Mullen. We have we have a superhero <laughs> franchise for you. Uh, there's something called Thor: Love and Thunder. I don't know what that is, mm. but the, <laughs> uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, and I Am Groot. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's tons of stuff. They talked about their ESPN stuff, but yeah, Disney. Uh, and and here's the thing: it's like I kind of had this vision like earlier this year uh, in March when. The stock market was actually at an all-time low, and Disney was at an all-time low, and I thought to myself, wow, it's going to really be low come the end of the year. Maybe that would be the time to pick up Disney. Nope. Nope. That, that was that, that was a, a bad plan, because Disney is currently, their stock is trading at the highest point it has ever been, it looks like. So it is, in, at least in the last five years. I feel like when Disney Plus first launched, it, I mean, it, it was sort of greeted with curiosity, and yeah, this is pretty good. 
like I and not as thoroughly developed as something at the time like Netflix, which of mm. course a new product probably isn't going to be that thoroughly developed. And uh, their logo should be Baby Yoda. I feel like Baby Yoda <laughs> is uh, it, it, Grogu or whatever his name is on the show. Uh, like that is the thing that has launched, you know, all of all of this. This has made uh, Disney Plus so successful. Of course, you know, you, you can't underestimate Hamilton. You can't underestimate them rolling the dice and, and having a $30 upcharge for Mulan. And all the money that would have been going to theatrical features is going to these streaming services. Although, as I was doing a little bit of research for our conversation about this, everyone's saying HBO Max is underperforming, which is, I find very surprising. That may change really soon, though, with the uh, 2021 slate premiering day and date. So who knows? Maybe uh, HBO Max might be the new big thing. Well, that's what they were all saying is that that's a Hail Mary pass to save HBO Max was like, OK, you'll be able to get like this premium, premium ass content on HBO Max. And uh, and so, you know, maybe that will help them compete with Disney Plus, because like when Disney Plus launched, it's like, yeah, it's great to have Pixar and Disney and, you know, all the stuff that's on there. There's some great stuff. Also, they have National Geographic. Like you forget how many other companies they've kind of brought under their umbrella purchased. That's the word. And then Hulu, of course, being a totally separate streaming service that's been around longer than most of the other streaming services. But they also own all of that. And that that is a lot of content. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of giving us new stuff, Really, there haven't been that many big new things on Disney Plus outside of The Mandalorian, which is an amazing show, and Hamilton, which, of course, is an experience that, you know, everybody in the world wanted. And I'm sure that these things are humongous drivers for subscribers, which is what all of them are looking to do. But they are, this announcement, I mean, I, I find this a little bit like, remember when... Um, yeah, I don't know, it was maybe like 2009 or so when Marvel announced that they were going to do, I forget how many movies. It was just an insane number of movies basically through this year. And then they did them all. <laughs> like they, yes, I don't indeed. know if there are any, any that they didn't do. I'm sure that there were ones that weren't on that list that they ended up doing. Like the Guardians of the Galaxy was a surprise hit for them. So they, you know, leaned into that more. There's been some stories that were announced uh, months ago, but have actually developed recently. And I think this one might be one of the biggest ones is that uh, Marvel has somehow worked it out with uh, Sony and that Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, they're all going to be sort of together in this Spider-Man live action Spider-Verse type of thing, which Spider-Verse, of course, huge hit. Uh, but of course, Spider-Man is one of these uh, big franchises that that Sony has had a lock on for a long time and Marvel's kind of wanted to to get it back. And it sounds like there's going to be this crossover where they're going to get basically everyone who's played Spider-Man together to kind of do this big, huge thing. So uh, so that's anyway, a, or at least I, I think that's interesting. And I'm going to keep my mind open because when I first saw Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, I was initially kind of skeptical. And then I, I watched it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I'd say one of the best superhero movies ever made, frankly, like it, just it's incredible pure brilliance right down to having John Mulaney play Spider-Ham. I, I thought everything <laughs> about that. It's just pure joy. So if they can capture that in live action, which I'm skeptical that it's possible to be done, but I, I would love to watch that. Well, it's got uh, it's got some really good original source material in the comics, the comics, which uh, ended up feeding, of course, the uh, the, the animated movie. And, and there's a quite a bit of departure and change. 
but and I assume there'll be more of that for a live action one. But that that's a that's it's an interesting time of studios working together and uh, old different sort of factions all kind of wanting to have their own thing, uh, finding a way to make peace. I can, the only thing I can think of that that maybe uh, seems similar might be like all the way back to the Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where Warner Brothers and Disney got together to put their characters in the same thing. So yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's that's pretty interesting. Anyway, uh, well, I, I sort of feel like, you know, they're really again, I, I say it a million times. There really is no silver lining for COVID-19. You know, a pandemic is just a worldwide tragedy, but it is also kind of a hitting of the reset button on a lot of things. And, uh, you know, as we start being able to get back to life, which, by the way, as we're recording this on Sunday night, tomorrow, Monday, uh, vaccines are going to start being actually delivered in uh, every state in the United States. So, you know, uh, we, we, I think are like the fifth or sixth in the world to have a vaccine uh, program going, but hopefully God willing, that signals the end of this insanity and, and we'll be able to get back to, to making stuff. But I feel like the imprint of 2020 is that a lot of, a lot of these alliances and business relationships will have changed or mutated or severed or been created out of necessity, but we'll, we'll continue to grow and uh, I don't think that the entertainment landscape is going to look the same ever again. You know, I think I think it's going to be a giant change, a seismic change throughout uh, the entire industry. I'm not saying that we're not going to eventually go back to our old habits, but I feel like, you know, uh, ink, ink has been spilled, contracts have been signed and the, in, the direction of the industry has been uh, altered. Hopefully for the better, but you know, change is change. You know, it's it, it's just gonna be what it is. I really hope that this uh, signals some sort of better coming together for the people of the planet too, because uh, this is this vaccine is going to, or multiple vaccines is going to be a worldwide thing, and essentially the entire world will except for maybe the people in New Zealand they won't need to rush into this they seem seem to be living a, a perfectly normal life congratulations my guess New is Zealand. they're probably still going to want to get some vaccine down to New Zealand you know they'd but, like to have tourism ever there again my my thinking is this well i mean uh i mean there's a lot of poor countries uh it, it's been announced that every american won't have to pay for this vaccine i don't know how that's going to be in other countries i don't know how long it'll take to you know get travel back to normal and to do a a worldwide it is in the interest billion of the yeah. whole world for everyone really to get is. this vaccine for 100%, free. 100%. Like, 100%. For countries that can't afford it, other countries should step up and pay for it. 100%. Because, because it's in the interest of the whole world for us to, to kick this thing. Yeah. And uh, I actually heard that there's a variation of one of these vaccines now that they think actually maybe with a little bit of tweaking might actually uh, immunize people from all flavors of coronavirus. And how amazing would that be? To not well, that would be like any. curing the common cold, right? Not quite curing the common cold, but pretty darn close. Pretty I mean, darn isn't close. The common cold, a coronavirus. It is, but the the common cold is not is not that common, and in how infectious it is. So I think it may. Well, be... we will save that for our spinoff virology podcast, <laughs> uh, in which we when we get to Jonas Salk week, we'll uh, we'll get way into that. But uh, I, I think we can go ahead and get into the interview with Frederick Wiseman. Yeah, let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We could not be more excited to be talking today to Paris, France, to the legendary documentary filmmaker, Frederick Wiseman. Honestly, one of my favorite documentarians, somebody whose work I've been watching, uh, you know, for over 30 years. Just love your work. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the show, Frederick. No, I'm pleased you asked me. That's, it's great. 
So you have an enormous body of work. And uh, I was first introduced to your work with what was your first directorial film, uh, Titicut Follies, which is a movie that I probably reference twice a month. And I, I actually bought the DVD from your company. And uh, I don't know if I watch it every year, but I, I've watched it several times. And uh, you have a style that is kind of incomparable. I don't, there, I don't know of another documentarian who works the way that you do. And moreover, I feel like if you go back and look at Titicut Follies and then you go look at your brand newest film, City Hall. It is clearly made by the same person. Like you kind of showed up with your voice, your your creative voice already kind of created. So really my first big question, and it is a big question, is where did you find that voice? Because you don't make documentaries like anybody else. The answer is I don't know where I found it, <laughs> but I'm glad that it was there. Um, to the extent that I understand anything, anything about the roots of what I do, I think it has to do with the fact that I, you know, I've always read a lot. And I, at one point, had fantasies about being a writer. So I I think, to the extent that I'm aware of what influences me, I've been more influenced by novels and poems that I've read than by movies that I've seen. And when I was at college, the critical theory that they talked a lot about in the English department was called close reading. So that when, you know, for example, if we read uh, The Sun Also Rises and, and had to discuss it, any ideas we had about the novel could in any way be related to Hemingway's life. We had to find proof in the text for whatever we were saying. So that made me learn. I le as a result of that, I learned how to pay close attention to words and the implications of words. And I, I think I brought that to making movies that, and, and not only paying close attention to, to words, but paying close attention to pictures and the implications of what it is I was seeing and hearing. So before you got into filmmaking, you were a lawyer, correct? Right. And you produced a feature that I was unable to find. I was looking for it, but you produced a feature before you directed. But like, what made you catch the directing bug, as it were? Well, I always wanted to be a director, and I uh, the feature was a movie called The Cool World. Mm -hmm. It was based on a novel by great American writer by the name of Warren Miller. It was about uh, kids and gangs in Harlem, and I got an option on the novel, but I hadn't, I had no experience directing movies. So I asked Shirley Clark, who filmed The Connection I had recently seen, whether she was interested, and uh, she was, and. So Shirley became the director, and The Cool World is not my film, it's Shirley's film. But uh, working on The Cool World completely uh, demystified the process of filmmaking for me. And so after that, and as a result of that experience, I uh, decided I would never produce a movie for somebody else, but I would only direct and produce my own movies. So a couple of years after The Cool World was finished, I thought about making a movie about the Bridgewater Prison for the Criminally Insane, and I knew the warden there because I, when I taught law, I had taken students there. And then he helped me lobby the commissioner of correction and, and other state officials uh, to get permission to make what would become Titty Cut Follies. And then as a result of doing Titty Cut Follies, I thought I could make, you know, institutions who were a good subject and were as yet untouched in, in movie terms. So, and it seemed to me a natural follow on to a prison for the criminally insane was a high school. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, and then I just, since then, I've just, you know, been, I haven't quite kept 
kept to the schedule of one film a year, but I've, you know, just kept to the idea of doing a portrait of contemporary life through institutions that are important in American society and have their analogs in other societies, although they don't take the same form. I mean, all societies have police. Uh, the, The form that they take is different, but the existence of an institution with the same name is common. Now, so the first film that you produced was a narrative film, and then your first film and then your entire career, except for The Lost Letter, I believe, have all been documentary. Right. What made you choose documentary? What drove you to to follow that? Well, the idea is that in ordinary experience, there's enough drama and comedy to match what you read in in fiction. Mm -hmm. And if you hang around long enough, uh, there's a good chance that you'll collect enough material out of which you can cut a dramatic narrative film. I mean, over the years, I've stopped using the word documentary because documentary, for me, always had the connotation of something that, you know, you should watch because it was good for you, uh, mm-hmm. like x <laughs> uh, I think the word movie is good enough for me. I make movies, and I think I make dramatic narrative movies uh, that are based on onstage events. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. I, I, I could probably spend all of our time just talking about Titicut Follies, but Titicut Follies kind of introduces us to the way you structure a film, which is to say, uh, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like each scene is kind of tightly structured, but there isn't necessarily, we're not following one story, or, or if we're following a story, it's the story of the institution is maybe the, the hidden protagonist of your work. But what that means is characters come and go. We don't necessarily find out what happens uh, to, to every character. It's not building towards the kind of resolution in the in the traditional sense that a lot of other documentaries kind of like want to leave you with like, and here's how it all turned out. But Titicut Follies kind of leaves you with the sense of like, here's how it, what it was like to be there the whole time. Well, but the thing is, I think what I describe as the dramatic narrative is perhaps related to the abstract ideas that the film is trying to deal with. Mm-hmm. Because I think in every film, but certainly in my films, there's both the literal aspect and the metaphoric or abstract aspect. The literal aspect of, say, Tidica Follies would be it's a movie about daily life in a maximum security prison that houses people who with behavior problems who... Uh, can't be managed in normal prisons uh, because of their uh, either they're psychotic or they have some other behavioral problem that requires them to be segregated or what thought it was thought that they needed to be segregated. So that's the literal aspect. Uh, the metaphoric aspect is what are the implications of the scenes that I choose to show and the order in which I show them. For example, the City Cut Follies starts with a uh, sequence from a stage show that was put on each year by the inmates and staff called City Cut Follies. And there, I think there are three, the scene in the middle of the film, which shows some of the show, and the film ends with the show. And instead of seeing review skits from a musical in the film, you see episodes from daily life. And so there's a whole showbiz metaphor for the structure of the film and some of the more abstract ideas that the film is meant to suggest. 
How do you uh, go about finding the subject matter and then identifying kind of the metaphorical story that you're going to tell? You know, mainly I just find a subject. And most of the time, I don't know anything about the subject mm-hmm. uh, before I start. For example, in City Hall, I, I think I'd been to City Hall once uh, in my whole life. If that, I don't even remember when that was. But the shooting of the film is the research. And then I find the film, I, I have no idea when I start what the themes or the point of view of the film are going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- that all emerges in the editing process. And I only work on the st- structure of the film at the end of the editing process. Uh, do you want me to describe the editing process? or I would love to hear you describe your editing process for sure. Uh, a couple of weeks after I co- come back from the shoot, uh, I start looking at the rushes. Uh, and typically I have around 150 hours of rushes. For City Hall, it was 104. For At Berkeley, it was 250 hours. Wow. Uh, and, but it generally is around 150 hours. And so it takes me about six weeks to look at all the rushes. And when I, I watch them, you know, in no particular order. Usually I start off with sequence, sequences that I remember liking because it's a way of uh, my getting interested in the material, knowing that as time goes on, I'm going to be completely absorbed in it and, and, and not really want to do anything else. And at the end of that six-week period, I set aside about 50% of the material that I, I'm not interested in. And the other 50%, I begin to edit the sequences that I think I might ultimately use. And it's only when I've edited all those so, so-called candidate sequences that I begin to uh, work on the structure. And I edit all those sequences in close to final form uh, because I can't begin to work on this. I, I, I can't work on structure in the, in the abstract. I have to uh, have before me an edited sequence and then put it in relation to another sequence and see what the consequences are of that choice. Mm-hmm. So uh, after about seven or eight months of editing individual sequences, in three, I mean, I have all those in close to final form. In three or four days, I put together the first assembly. And the first assembly is usually 30 or 40 minutes longer than the final film. Uh, and then it takes me another six weeks where I work on the internal rhythm within the sequence and the external rhythm, uh, that is the, the, the arrangements, the transition shots between sequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I have what I think is the final version of the film, I go back and look at all 150 hours all over again, just to make sure that there's nothing I've left out. Really? You go back and look at all the raw footage? I look at all the rough footage. Sometimes I look at it at high speed, uh, but I, I make sure that I look at every single frame again in one way or another. And I often find transition shots that I'd forgotten. And sometimes I find a sequence that helps in the sense that it, it provides some exposition for a sequence that I've used. And, uh, and, and I think I need that exposition. But editing one of these films takes, I have to feel that I, whether I'm right or wrong, but I have to feel that I have complete mastery of the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I, you know, and I reach the age where I sometimes have trouble remembering my name, but I can remember all, all the sequences and all the films uh, and, and recite the dialogue. Because I've do, you, watched do you ever go back and look at, at uh, your previous films? Uh, not very often. Only when sometimes I get invited to a school or college and they want to show a couple of films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
if I want to refresh my vernal collection, I'll look at it, but uh, pr- usually at high speed. <laughs> well, yeah, and you have uh, what, like, it's over 50 features that you've uh, produced and directed at this point, so. Uh, it's, a, it's a mere 46. 46? You'll, yeah. you'll get to 50. That's my goal. I mean, <laughs> to make three, four, three or four or five minute films to do it. <laughs> So one of the things that I think is just a hallmark of all your work is the intimacy, the intimate look that we get with all of your subjects, with the people that you're uh, documenting, the, the whatever the subject is. And I'm just curious because, uh, you know, these aren't generally people who are used to being on camera or having a film crew around. How do you go about kind of uh, getting them in, in uh, used to you being there? And how do you get the access, the level of access that you get to these institutions? I, I mean, at this point, your name means a lot, but, you know, a lot of these are probably not people who are following the, the film world to begin with. Yeah, the, the real answer to your question is I don't know. Uh, but I, can, I, I can tell you what I do. I mean, I try and make clear to the participants what's going on, how it's mm-hmm. going to be shot, where it's going to be used. But not everybody asks, and there's not always time. For example, a place that has a, a bulletin board, a, notices are put up on the bulletin board, or a place that has uh, an internal newsletter, uh, an article appears in the newsletter. I, I try to demystify the process of filmmaking to the extent that I can. If somebody uh, comes up and, and uh, wants to know how the camera works, uh, John Davy, uh, the cameraman who I work with, shows them how the camera works. If they want to know how the tape recorder works, I show them how the tape recorder works. Uh, in other words, I, I make sure the process is completely open. No bullshit. I mean, no phony stories, uh, no promises of Academy Awards. <laughs> in my, my experience is that it's very rare that anybody doesn't agree to be photographed. It's equally rare that anybody acts for the camera. Now, that's contrary to what a lot of people say and think, but the pretentious way of putting it is that the Heisenberg principle doesn't apply, in my experience, to documentary filmmaking, because I don't think the camera has any effect on the participants. And I say that because most of us are not good enough actors to suddenly change our behavior. The way we act we we have our routines and sometimes our routines can be extremely dramatic or extremely funny or banal or whatever but we have our routines and the moment when we depart from those routines it's readily apparent not just to to me as a documentary filmmaker but i think it's i mean to anybody that meets a lot of people they have to in order to survive you have to know when you're getting bullshitted And similarly, it has nothing to do with making a documentary film, but if you think somebody's putting it on for the camera, you stop shooting. Uh, If you don't realize that you get to the editing room, you don't use it. But it it comes up so rarely as to not be a problem. If people could suddenly change their behavior, then casting directors in America would have an enormous problem because they'd have 300 million people to choose from, and not everybody's Meryl Streep. Yeah. Uh, have you found that like as people have become more media savvy over the last, you know, whatever, 15, 20 years, uh, you know, especially the last 10 years with everyone doing stuff on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that, that people ask you more about where it's going or what it's going to be or that they ha- have a different way? No, marginally different because, I mean, I do my best to explain all that before they have a chance to ask me. 
because I think I have an obligation to let, to the extent that it's possible, and it's not always possible, but I think I have an obligation to let people know what I'm doing, who I'm doing it for, where the movie will be shown. So I, I, I've been very fortunate in that PBS has backed my films almost from the be- from the beginning, really. Uh, even, even from even before PBS was was created, there, there was a, a special thing called PBL, Public Broadcast Lab- Laboratory. And uh, my f- third film, Law and Order, was supported by them. And, but since PBS has been created, either I've been I've gotten money from either PBS or a, a station in the public television network, uh, which has supported the work, or uh, I received funding from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting or from the independent television, uh, uh, ITVS, the Independent Television Service. So I'm sure this is a very basic question, but I feel like it informs everything about if someone were to approach your filmography freshly, like what is it about a specific institution that draws you to it? If you haven't, like, if you're saying that the shooting is the research, what makes you say like, okay, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a movie about a zoo. Because I'm a gambler, Uh, (laughs) but I I don't go to Las Vegas, but what I do is Las Vegas modeled uh, in a sense that I pick a subject and I, I'm gambling that if I hang around the place long enough, I'll have enough sequences out of which I can cut a movie. Mm-hmm. So each movie is a roll of the dice. And like, how do you go about even deciding which institutions you're going to go into? Total instinct. I mean, some of it's related that I, you know, for example, for City Hall, Boston City Hall was the only city hall out of the five or six that I approached that gave me permission. Really? I mean, I, I was delighted they gave me permission. Yeah, I was very pleased to be able to work in Boston. But, I mean, basically I'm there because the mayor uh, and his uh, someone on his staff liked the idea. Uh, I mean, it could, could have been they didn't like the idea, and either I wouldn't have gotten permission to make a movie about a city hall or I would have done it somewhere else. But of the six places that I approached, only Boston said yes. And I was kind of interested in that one, too, that, uh, you know, your films don't often follow one character. But Marty Walsh, uh, the the mayor of Boston, uh, pops up a lot in your film. Was there any um, was there any effort put forth to make him kind of a I don't want to say a through line, but a a recurring motif, his his interactions? No, it it came out that way in the editing uh, because he he's central to everything that goes on. Mm -hmm. And. I mean, it's his policies that the employees of City Hall are implementing. Basically, uh, the buck stops with him and also starts with him. I kind of want to ask you a little bit, since we are the Cinematography Podcast, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about your relationship to your cinematographers. And you've been working with uh, John Davey for, uh, it's about 30 years now, if I'm not mistaken, almost almost exclusively. Well, uh, yeah, I worked. With the exception of one film, I worked exclusively with John Davy since 1978. You know, John and I are good buddies. We we get along extremely well. We have the same kind of sense of humor. Uh, and uh, if these film shoots aren't fun and absorbing, they're not worth doing. Mm. You know, basically we have a good time. Uh, and it, it's one of the things that I like a lot about this kind of filmmaking is that. It, it makes demands on all our faculties. It's physically very demanding. You have, you're on your feet 10, 12 hours a day carrying heavy equipment. It's emotionally demanding because you're, sometimes you're witnessing 
events that are, uh, for instance, when we made near death, which is about how decisions are made. Yeah. Treating dying people, we were around a lot of very sick and dying people. Uh, but the, the films are always emotionally demanding in one way or another, and they're intellectually very demanding. John and I, we have worked together a long time, and you know, from my point of view, we work together very well. How do, how do the two of you, and I know that like, especially when directors and, and cinematographers work together almost exclusively, they divide the task differently than if you were to just hire somebody, you know, a stringer to go shoot some stuff for you somewhere. Um, but how do you two divide the, the breakdown of the visual uh, of, of what you're getting any, at a, on a given day? Well, I pick out what's going to be shot and John shoots it. I'm always there, you know, I'm, I'm doing the sound and if, uh, if I want to move to someone else that's talking and John sees me move with the mic. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's great. So, so he just kind of follows, follows the, the boom mic or whatever. And, and we're looking at each other and we have little signals that we use. And, and when, when we're not too tired at night, we watch rushes and we talk about the way things are shot and we talk about different ways to shoot things the next time we're in a similar situation. Um, both John and I are completely absorbed. And it's one of the great things about working with him is that, you know, he shares my wish to be totally absorbed in the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's a very, it's, it's great fun, but it's an extraordinarily intense experience. I notice in your films too, that the, the camera work just is always very static. Like um, there's never any tilts or pushes or zooms or pans. It's uh, I, I know that to me is very interesting and that's a choice. So why do you make that choice aesthetically for your, for your films? Well, because I, the important thing is the subject matter from the beginning. I haven't wanted to call attention to anything, but the subject matter. Also, you, you, don't, you don't have a chance to do a tracking shot in a documentary unless you set things up. And, and I don't set things up, so bye-bye tracking shot. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of the a good 70 or 80, sometimes 90% of the movie is handheld. And uh, John is extremely steady. There are occasional tripod shots, but a lot of it is just handheld. The way I summarize the, the short answer to your question is, the technique is always at the service of the subject matter, not the other way around. Mm. I remember hospital, and I know this is going way back, but in hospital, there's just some super intense scenes, you know, with people who are extremely sick or ha- having massive symptoms right then and there. Like, how do you communicate? I mean, I guess if, you know, like I'm thinking there's that one scene where where the young guy who is overdosing on a drug or something is is uh, vomiting and there isn't really even time to be like, get the close up. Like it, it you just kind of have to go with what's happening in the moment at that point. But, but that's like, always, well, that's always true. I mean, that's a very dramatic sequence. But the fact of the matter is you only have one go at any sequence. Yeah. Because you can't ask anybody, or you can ask, but I don't do that. Uh, you have one, one opportunity to get it. And, and for example, if you're in a meeting, when I think there's a lull in the meeting, I know from my experience editing that I'm going to need uh, shots of people who aren't saying anything who are present at the meeting in order to be able to reduce the sequence for an hour and a half to seven minutes. Yeah. So when I think there's a lull, we shoot cutaways. We just sh- shoot shots of people sitting, listening, scratching their head, writing on a pad, etc. And then if, if uh, 
somebody starts to say something interesting, we go back over to the person that's talking. And you've said that your that your stuff is uh, highly manipulated, and I feel like as a viewer, it feels uh, it it feels as real as any movie I've ever seen. Well, it, well, that's fictional. No, it, it, it's I don't. When I use the word manipulated, I'm not using it in a pejorative sense. I'm using it in the sense that the films are highly edited. And I, I, a moment ago, I referred to a meeting. Well, some of the meetings in City Hall, for example, went on an hour and a half. The, the, the marijuana meeting uh, went on for about two and a quarter hours. It's 26 minutes in the film, which is a very long sequence. But it's 20 minute, 26 minutes selected, say, from two and a half hours. Yeah. And it's two minutes here, a minute there, uh, 60 frames here, 120 frames there edited together to appear as if the sequence took place the way you're seeing it, but it didn't. I mean, that's the fictional, or one example of the fictional aspect of this kind of filmmaking. Yeah. To the extent that the sequence works, it works because I've uh, been able to edit it in such a way that when you see it, you think it occurred that way, but it didn't. What are you editing for? Like, what drives the choices? When I start looking at the sequences, I have to constantly ask myself, the, I mean, uh, I make a pompous statement, editing is talking to yourself. Uh, and, and when I'm talking to myself, I'm constantly having to ask myself the question, why? Why is somebody scratching their head now? Why does somebody ask for a cigarette at this moment? Uh, why are they wearing a coat, this kind of a coat rather than that kind of a coat? Why do they look left rather than right? Why do they use this word rather than that word? And I whether I'm correct or not, I have to think that I understand what's going on in the sequence in order first to make the decision whether I want to use it, and second, to be able to cut it down to a usable form, and third, figure out where it's going to be placed in the structure of the film and what the significance of that placement might be. And before the film is finished, one of the last things I also do is I have to be able to put into words why each shot is selected and why it's placed where it's located in the film. Because if I can't provide myself a verbal rationale, even though I may have arrived at the cut in a dream or thought of it in the shower, <laughs> or walking down the street, or simply by paying attention to my associations, the goal in taking in trying to make a movie of whatever length out of 150 hours of rushes is to find a dramatic narrative that's coherent. And it can't be coherent unless I can explain to myself all the choices that I've made. I mean, do you ever uh, get to a point where you're like, you're satisfied with a scene, you're, you're finished with a scene and you look at it and you're like, I can't put into words why this shot is here. I'm going to cut it out. Or... Uh, no. Do you ever no. like you know that, that's part of the self-deception that's involved because I can always you know I can rationalize it to myself whether the rationale is a good one or not you know always remains to be seen. <laughs> but, uh, sometimes I get stuck in the editing and I you know I you know but I mean the solution for that is always to take a hot shower or go for a walk or go home and go to bed or go to the movies or read a book or come back mm. the next day and you know some solution uh, always pops up. I mean. Because it's like any, like anything else. You're, even though you think you're not working on it, you're working on it. 
I, I also wanted to talk to you about The Lost Letter. Yeah, I, I watched actually uh, for our listeners who are, aren't familiar. I've talked about the, serv- the streaming service Canopy, but a lot of your films are on Canopy. And when I was uh, preparing for this, I was kind of looking through to see the ones that I'd seen before. And then I was like, The Lost Letter. I'd never heard of it. And uh, I went ahead and watched it. And uh, I mean, it is it is haunting and it is beautiful. But and I know that you don't like to call your films documentaries per se, but it's as far from a documentary as anything you've ever made. What made you choose to make that one thing as, as uh, your, I mean, I don't know if, if you had the grand plan of you were never going to make narrative cinema, a fictional cinema. I, I wanted to make other fiction films. And in fact, I wrote this script based on a great novel by Ann Tyler called Celestial Navigation. Mm. And I get the money for it. Uh, and I worked in a couple of other scripts but, you know, I found that I was wasting an enormous amount of time bullshitting with producers uh, and I wasn't enjoying it. And I enjoy making the documentary. So I just stopped even trying. Mm. Uh, and, and this was something, the last letter was something I had complete control of. It was my idea. I acquired the rights. Uh, I got the money to make the film from uh, French television networks and French subsidies. And the reason I made it is, uh, you know, the subject matter. It's the story of a Russian Jewish woman doctor who writes a last letter to her son a couple of days after the Germans have occupied the small village she lives in in the Ukraine. And, and she tells her, you know, basically tells the son the story of her life and uh, explains why she divorced the boy's father. And the son is now man who's a famous Russian physicist. And, and, uh, the letter also recounts what happens in this small town or village when the German soldiers came in and the Jews recognized quickly that they were going to be marched out of town in a few days and after digging their own graves would be machine gunned and killed. And having grown up during the Second World War and having had parents who were, uh, my father was a Russian immigrant who came to America when he was five, and, and, and being very aware of what the Germans were doing to the Jews and the horrors of the Second World War was a subject that, that interested me. And I thought the text was so magnificent that I should try and make a movie out of it. Um, I feel like this is a, a good place also to talk about your, your theater work because you're known in the film world, you know, as one of one of the most storied legendary documentarians. But you've done a great uh, deal of live theater work, which having myself done film and theater work like those worlds are very separate, even though the skill sets kind of overlap. But, you know, theater where you're choosing everything that happens and kind of manipulating the staging and the reality and, and everything of, of what's going on seems very far from your documentary work where you're uh, observing and, and allowing things to play out the way that they're playing out. Uh, what what brought you into the theater? My possibility of my work in the theater really started as a result of my doing a movie about the Comédie Française, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the great theatrical repertory companies of the world. And after I made the documentary about the Comédie Française, the administrator guy in charge asked me if I wanted to direct something there. Uh, and I had recently read Grossman, so I suggested the last letter, and he said okay. I'm curious though, like what from your uh, from from your filmmaking background translated over into theater, or did you find it refreshingly different in terms of the uh, the artistic approach to what you were doing? 
Well, I think one thing that turned over uh, that helped me a lot is in the course of making the movies, I've been in all kinds of situations and I met all kinds of people from, you know, as the cliche goes, all walks of life and all classes of society and all races and all genders and all ethnicities. And, and so uh, just as a consequence of, of making the films, I've been lucky enough to have a wide participate in, or at least observe, a very wide swath of human experience. And so, I mean, I, I like to think that when I'm trying to make suggestions to actors about what to do uh, and what gestures to make or how to walk or uh, tone of voice or the usual things you have to uh, participate in, that I'm drawing on that experience of 55 years in meeting, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people and, uh, and sad and funny and situations. And it, 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 it's, a, it's a reservoir of experience, which is <laughs> valuable when trying to explain to an actor what you want them to do. I do feel like watching City Hall is one of those things where uh, living in, a, in America, especially in a media environment where government is constantly being criticized by government, you know, like the president or whoever is always kind of saying how ineffective government is. One of the things that was most fascinating and encouraging about City Hall was watching government actually work, like seeing how it how it functions and helps people. Uh, was there in, in choosing that subject matter, you know, because you shot that. That, that's like right up to like a year before COVID-19. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very recent. Were you choosing to do subject matter like that? I mean, I know that you're saying that you're, um, the shoot is the research, but were you interested to see, can government work? Was that part of what was going through? It may have been naive of me, but I wasn't really thinking about that as an issue before I started. I mean, it, it was a bit what I said before. I just thought, what happens in City Hall and the work of the people, uh, the employees of City Hall, might make a movie. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I, once again, I rolled the dice. And I mean, I, I knew that uh, Mayor Walsh had a very good reputation, but I, I hadn't observed, I hadn't been in any meetings, I, hadn't, I didn't know anything firsthand. You know, I, I, it really is always my experience that the, that the film emerges in the editing. I have a general impression at the end of the shooting but the general impression is pretty vague. And it's only in the course of having to make the editorial choices that the point of view uh, emerges. Um, I think that's a really good place to end. I, I, I do want to say something because I, I just wanted to tell you because you never really get a chance to tell your heroes this face to face or zoom to zoom as it were. But I was one of the people who had made the, the Blair Witch Project and I was the production designer on the movie. But my first directing job was a, a special a TV special for Showtime to promote the Blair Witch Project. But it was another fake documentary. And I went into the mythology and there's a there's a murderer in the 1940s who supposedly blamed it on the Blair Witch, but one of the kids got away. And I went into artisan entertainment at the time and I pitched them the idea that documentary footage had cropped up of that guy as an older man. And I showed them some of Titicut Follies to say, like, this is the kind of vibe that that I want this stuff to do. And they went for it. And I was actually able to create this kind of documentary within a documentary of, of this old old footage. And it was entirely inspired 
inspired by uh, by your film. And uh, I just wanted to say, because I've never, I don't know that I'll ever have another chance. Just thank you for making that movie. And it was a huge inspiration for me. And, and uh, I'm glad I was able to, the first time I was ever hired to direct anything, I was able to pay some homage to your work. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that a lot. And, and I, uh, I thought the Blair Witch Project was very fun. I, oh, thanks. <laughs> good work. Thank you. But also, if you want to plug your own uh, website, Zipporah Films, uh, which is where I bought my DVD of Titicut Follies, whenever, the second you released it, I, I, I bought it. Um, I, I've been on your mailing list for years. Yeah. So, um, All the films are available from Zipporah Films. Yeah, because before you started doing that, your films were only available to like to rent a print <laughs> to like project. Yeah. So uh, that's ZipporahFilms.com, correct? Right, right. So, uh, you know, definitely uh, our listeners can get can get any of your work from ZipporahFilms.com. It's awesome that you own all of your own films so that you're able to distribute them yourself. I think that's brilliant. Um, but it, please go check that out. And, and again, uh, Frederick, thank you. A thousand thank yous for coming on the show. Well, thank you. So that was Frederick Wiseman, and uh, if it wasn't uh, very clear in my interview, also one of the biggest thrills of my entire life to be able to talk to him. And I don't, I don't like to get too personal or make these things too much about me, but it was amazing to actually tell someone who had inspired my own work the profound uh, impact he'd had on me and, and how I had kind of taken the inspiration of his work and, and it had played into my own work. And it was uh, awesome to hear his opinion of the Blair Witch Project. I believe the word was hilarious, or I, I thought it was funny. So good times. Yeah, I, I and uh, it's it's truly a uh, a bucket list interview for you. I mean, it really is uh, huge. We've been hitting a lot of those lately, including one that we started today and did a part one of, and we we have to conclude later. But yeah, we've we've really. Uh, I, again, there, there is no upside to a pandemic. I'm not trying to make light of the pandemic, but because of the pandemic, it kind of opened us up to doing interviews with people in remote areas because we chose to start using Zoom. And uh, that has meant we've, re- we've gotten to interview some pretty amazing folks, including Frederick Wiseman, who was in France when we interviewed him. So I don't, I don't know that he gets to L.A. very often. <laughs> Maybe he does. I, I, don't know. I, I don't know either, but it, but it, was, a, it, was, a real, uh, it was a real treat. Real, it was real fantastic. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it's uh, time for our short end portion of the show. Yes, yes. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of this week? Well, I, I, it, given that it is Glassmas. That's right, Glassmas. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm sorry. I apologize again to all the people out there who, like, don't give a crap about any technology who are listening to this. But assuming you're not one of those people, there's so many amazing lenses that are coming out right now and that are finally available. Some of them are really affordable. And uh, I've talked about some of those. Some of them are a little bit more moderate, like I talked about last time. This one is definitely, um, it's going to sound weird. It's an expensive lens, but it is dirt cheap for what it actually gives you. Our good friend of the show, uh, George Foyt, owns a owns the earlier version of this lens. Uh, it is made by Canon. The earlier version, the version that really a lot of people who shoot television use, is called a seventeen to one twenty. It's seventeen. I have actually on. used George's seventeen to one twenty. I've used his very lens. It's a great lens. It's incredibly wide. It's incredibly it's long. Lens. It does all kinds of great stuff, and it's it's relatively fast at. 295 is is what they say it, it ramps i think on the long end it's like a four it's four so it's a, it's a, you lose a stop now canon has a new version of this lens that is a 25 to 250 but it gets even better it's the same speed it's about the same size it has a detachable servo motor just like the 17 to 120 but they have 
done something that no one has ever done before in a cinema super 35 style zoom lens, which is it has a built in doubler has a doubler, which means that all of a sudden your lens is no longer uh, a 25 to 250. When you engage it, you lose an extra stop of light. But I want to say it's it's 1.6 times, which means it's like, or maybe it's 1.4. It's like 37 on the wide side. And on the long side, that would make it like uh, 350 plus or something like that. So, uh, and it doesn't require you to, to strap something onto the front. It doesn't require you to remove the lens. There's literally a lever. You switch that lever and boom, the doubler pops in. And now all of a sudden you're, you're relatively uh, extreme normal 10 to one zoom lens, which also the fact that something someone's made that so small and working for a super 35 camera now can be so much longer, like 37 to like 350 or something like that. Jesus and, Christ, which is just no one has ever, ever done. So Canon's going to own this market until Fujinon or someone else comes out with something like this. So You, you said but, it's expensive. How expensive is it? 30 grand, 29,995. So so it's priced to rent, as I like to priced say. Priced to rent, uh, unless this is unless this is your bag or your rental house or your uh, mm-hmm. you know. And and there have been other sort of super crazy long range zoom lenses before, but they're all really big, and they they come in at much higher prices, like you know seventy thousand, hundred thousand dollars, like really really mm-hmm. expensive stuff. So a thirty thousand dollar lens is by 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 reality uh and a relative bargain but for you know the the normal run-of-the-mill person who might be making stuff for youtube or local regional stuff it's yeah it's priced to rent but uh just the fact that anyone has come out with this thing uh is amazing and you can pre-order it or you can you know place a deposit for it at hot red cameras for 250 bucks and if you're a hot red cameras customer uh we're gonna have one available for testing and demos and all that kind of stuff but it is a uh, incredible piece of mechanics and optics and uh and design no one has done something like this so merry glassmas to everyone this this lens wow. uh, will will yeah. change the way television in particular but also movies are are shot and produced it's it's incredible that's pretty interesting. Also, I w- this is kind of a, a side note, but I was reading a news article about how one of the Canon cameras that shoots 4K was recently approved for Netflix. And, uh, you know, like all of these streaming networks, people, some people maybe know this, maybe they don't. They have tight reins on what kind of cameras you can use. Like when I worked on a, on a show for Crackle, we had to shoot on the Red Epic because they needed a 4K finish. And it became uh, kind of an arms race amongst certain cameras about which ones would be approved by the streamers, Netflix being probably still the biggest. And so, you know, that that lens plus that camera, it's, it's, it's quite an investment. But uh, uh, that camera that was just approved is only a $5,500 camera. It's called the Canon uh, C70. I think I've talked about it on the show before, but it is a pretty amazing, tiny little powerhouse of a camera. And uh, really, your lens, your lens is going to cost six times the price of your camera, essentially. And that's actually the way it should be, and the way it is going to be going forward. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but the cameras kind of come and go. But the lenses, the lenses I bought decades ago, I'm still using. You know, and some of them, some of them are amazing. Yeah, cameras are are becoming one of the more more disposable things. And if you are making the hundred thousand dollar investment in an area or some other high price cameras uh you will have more life out of that but you ought to be a professional you ought to be able to monetize that in a, a reasonable time frame because uh the march and the arms race as you say for uh, for for camera equipment is never ending and lenses 
typically don't get these sort of updates that are happening right now. This is all very uh, unusual, but uh, but really, um, yeah, when you invest in a lens, you're kind of investing in technology that's going to be able to be relevant for the next several decades. And for your camera, it's probably a five-year window at most. Yeah. So my short end this, this week is also kind of technology related, but I think what? it's very interesting. This is, this is a departure for you unless it's an app. Uh, it sort of is. Uh, what it is, is uh, it's a web service hmm. called Rendero, and somebody sent it to me, and I kind of looked at it, and I have not tried it, so I can't endorse it as a, as a thing that I've actually used. But it's your obsession. Uh, well, I was looking into it because it, uh, I mean, like, you know, let's use obsession as kind of a loose uh, guideline here. <laughs> so, it, so this it's, week it's, a, it's not quite your obsession. It's more of your it's a fascination. Pet, it's a pet interest. No, okay. I mean, well, it's interesting enough that like it was going to be my thing for last week and I've, I'm still, you know, looking into it. So basically what Rendero is, is an, a virtual computer somewhere else. Mm. Uh, you can go to rendero.com to check it out. And again, I have not used it and I am not endorsing it, but here's the deal. You go shoot your footage, you upload it to their server, you pay for the space that you use. They have both hot and cold storage. I think they're not charging or charging significantly less for cold storage. So hot storage is like, you can access it immediately. You tell them what kind of computer you want. You tell them what program you want to use. So say you know, Resolve or Premiere, or Avid, whatever. And like literally you can specify anything about the computer you want to use. And then from your desktop at home, which does not have to be anything like that computer, you can edit on their service. Now, until uh, I think I talked about it a couple uh, months ago when I had an editing job that was done remotely and it was kind of the same thing where they brought like a, a, a crappy old computer to my house and I was just using it as kind of an input output device for a better computer in Burbank sure. and, you know, because of COVID, nobody wanted to go literally be in their offices. This is kind of another step along that ladder. When I, when somebody sent it to me, I actually went to Kay's, uh, our, the guy who composes all of our music. Cause he's also uh, definitely the most computer savvy person I have ever known. And, <laughs> uh, and, and Kay's was like, Oh yeah. You know, like it's the technology is probably not perfect yet, but you know, in like two or three years, it's going to be like stupid. Why are you buying your own computer? Because it, it's a lot cheaper to do your stuff uh, this way than it would be to up, upgrade to your computer, especially in this day and age where a new Mac Pro is going to run you about 10 grand because you can basically just pay for it as you go. And uh, I don't, again, I'm not endorsing Rendero per se. I think it's an interesting idea. It might be worth trying on a small project at some point just to kind of dip my toe in it. I think it's a really cool idea, but sort of what Kays is saying is like, expect to see a million of these. Like there's going to be a lot of services that can do this because really what it is, is it's cloud st cloud storage, which probably they don't have locally either, or maybe they have it remotely and locally. And then they have a computer that you're, that you're running. So, you know, imagine, I, I don't know if it's a warehouse full of computers or I don't know what it is. Um, but I mean, like literally there's like a, a slider bar that you can say like how fast of a processor you want. And, and you can seamlessly, like if you're working on a project, like let's say you're doing your rough edit and you don't need that much processing power. And then later you're doing a ton of after effects and you need more processing power and graphics for, you know, fine tuning VFX kind of stuff without changing your project, you can switch to a faster computer. I just think it's a really cool idea. And I think that if that works, that will revolutionize post because 
you could literally be on a tablet, you know, as sitting in your backyard editing on the fastest computer on earth because you don't need to you don't need to be there. And and literally every computer that you would use would just be an input output device for this service. I, I'm actually surprised we haven't talked about this before, but um, yeah, Google actually offers kind of a service like this right now to give you virtual GPUs. You can essentially use their private internet pipeline to throw your data, your pixels, uh, and they do charge you like some tiny fraction of a cent per pixel for the rendering uh, for all the data that goes in and out of your computer uh, to their virtual massive server farm. And you pay uh, essentially a, a rate that's based on the number of GPUs you're you're using so literally there's a little drop down menu like in the upper right hand corner of your you have your Mac cheapo I uh, you know Mac mini or laptop or whatever it is and your data goes through the magic of the internet to their super fast rendering farm computer system processes and then spits it back to your computer lightning fast and uh, it works out to be I think like eight or ten dollars an hour or something like that you have to buy yeah. it's 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 ridiculously cheap but yeah that's that's the future um, I don't know if you've heard of um, Google's new online video game platform called Stadia. You get to play video games, but you just have a basic computer at your at your home. They give you a controller and they give you a Chromecast and then it goes to your television set and you can play all kinds of very, very processor intensive. Like you've seen all these people who make these crazy gaming rig computers with lights and water cooling yeah, and all that yeah. stuff. Uh, you can pay like 10 bucks a month now and get access to a computer similar like that. It's just not in your house. You just have to have a 50 megabit data connection through your internet, some sort of not even that fast, but relatively fast thing. And voila, now you're 1080p 60 frames per second gaming. And they think that, um, for people out there who are sick of upgrading to the latest Xbox or PlayStation, that this might be a big thing because truly you can buy the new cyberpunk game for 50 bucks. And if you're already a Google subscriber for something like Google one or they they have dip various different services, they give you three months of it for free anyway. So it's like they're, they're planning on trying to disrupt uh, video games. It's, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. So I think we've beaten this into the ground uh, thoroughly. <laughs> it's definitely in the ground for sure. But uh, yeah, check out Rendero.com. And again, I'm sure that there are other services. Hey, if you know of another service like this, hit me up on Twitter at Neptune Salad and tell me all about it. Because I, I think this is, you know, definitely the future and it's very fascinating. You know, we should. So Ilya. W- before, before we do that, though, we should actually do one last thing. We're, we're talking about doing sort of a uh, end of the year special episode where we talk about we basically do a year in review. Uh, if you're still listening to to the sounds of our voices now at the deep, deep end of this episode, uh, you're a super fan. What? Uh, please reach out to us. Uh, we, we've posted about this on Facebook and on uh, Instagram. And uh, if anywhere you want to give us some feedback about what your favorite episode was or what you'd like to get a little bit more, just a little bit extra morsel from, uh, hit us up. Let us know what, you know, what was your favorite cinematography podcast episode of 2020? We did a lot. Yeah, it's been a pretty, uh, pretty busy year. And I feel like we have enough banked to get through half of 2021 as well. Uh, a, a good ways for sure. But uh, yeah. and we got some great episodes coming up just in January. Stuff that I, I, I I've been waiting for forever, which I'm I'm really excited oh, yeah. about. So again, one of one of which we inter- we did uh, probably the first half of the interview today, and it was you know one one of the will not disappoint list people. Yeah, will not disappoint. With, yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, very exciting stuff. All right, so Ben, where can people find you? 
uh, go to benrockonline.com. You can uh, you can see my reel. You can find all my social media connections. You can add me on social media. If you add me, uh, let me know you're a fan of the podcast, and I'll add you back. Twitter and Instagram are a little bit, and LinkedIn are a little bit easier than Facebook. But if you uh, really want to see pictures of my kid and my dog, hit me up on <laughs> Facebook. Uh, your kid and your dog. I, I I guess I've missed those posts, but I'll, I'll have to do a search. So, I, the, oh, really, you haven't seen pictures of my kid and my dog? Oh my no, god, not lately. So, S- some and friend it, you turned out to be. Turns out, I guess I did see the Star Wars thing though, and I that's where I, that's where the you know Real Housewives of the Tuscan Raiders came from. So there were some, especially on Twitter, there were some really really funny pitches, and I was like, you know, actually these would be funny to do. They should do. I I know they won't because uh, Lucasfilm takes itself very seriously. But I think if they decided to be a little goofier, uh, they could they could do a lot of it would be funny to see some of the ideas that were were pitched. And some of them I was like, you know, if you just if you took that that basic idea, you could you could pretty it up a little bit, make it a little bit more self-serious. And I could almost see Lucasfilm going for it anyway. Long diversion. So where can people find you? (laughs) Oh, God, I just my mind is racing. I was thinking of like, you know the Ally McBeal C3PO crossover. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, to me, that, that was the fun of it. it. was It was like thinking about reality shows that could take place in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> okay. Reality you, you, shows or, or sitcoms. Like, uh, I, I, I had written one for uh, Everyone Loves Greedo. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's that kind of thing. Anyway. Uh, good times. Hey, uh, well, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, uh, hotrodcameras.com, and uh, you can you can find me through the socials. I'm, I'm not too hard to find. There's only like three Ilya Friedmans on the planet, and uh, I think I've been online longer than the other two, so I usually come up first. So screw those guys. Yeah. I did find another Ben Rock and, and befriended him on Twitter, and now we're like friends on Twitter and Facebook. Nice. You're going yeah. to make a clan of other Ben Rocks? You know? I, is it Ben Rocks or Ben's Rock? I don't know, but didn't you say that there was a French movie with that title too? Is your name? Yeah, there there is a French film from 1992, and the title of the movie is Ben Rock, and I can't find it anywhere. But uh, it's uh, it's the name of the movie is Ben Rock, and the director that's the only film that director's ever made. Oh God, you got to get a poster, and you got to tell everyone that movie was named after you. <laughs> It was based on my life in 1992, so it was uh, You're working based at a theater. On a, on a, yeah, on a pro, on a projectionist who also worked at a health food store and who uh, in Florida, who, Central Florida, who was, who was in film school. Uh, awesome. Uh, all right. Well, I, I think that does about just about does it for us. Uh, who do we have to thank? Let's thank some people. Uh, let us uh, first start by thanking the amazing Alana Cody, who is working her ass off and getting us some of uh, some some just outrageously exciting interviews with some brilliant people lately. Um, and, you know, every week it's like, oh, my God, we're getting to interview Anthony Dodd Mantle. And like, I, I can't tell you how many of uh, my uh, some some of my the most exciting people that that we've ever had on the show we've had just very very recently this isn't to take away from the excitement factor of other people but it, you know there are people whose work i've i've just always wanted to talk to anthony dodd mantle being a big one all right uh let's thank uh ben katz ben katz making a sound you know he had his work cut out i think at least with me today but uh yeah i i just hope ben cut out about 30 percent of what we said and yeah. i think we'd be in good shape good yeah exactly 30 percent we'll, we'll we'll be doing just fine let's thank uh case alatrachi case alatrachi uh big computer head brain not listening to this show uh yeah would he listen to frederick wiseman i don't i don't know if he's a frederick wiseman fan or not 
He doesn't strike me as a Frederick Wiseman fan. He's way more into like genre and fantasy and sci-fi than document straight documentary. But you know, the guy surprises me sometimes. Maybe this will be one of them. All right. Well, let's sign off before I say anything else that, that that's not true or embarrassing. So, <laughs> uh, which, which is entirely likely. Cool. Uh, we will see you next week at the cinematography podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.